My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 52, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, Exodus 39 and 40, Leviticus 27, and Psalm 84. Exodus 39, from the blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, they made woven garments for ministering in the sanctuary. They also made sacred garments for Aaron, as the Lord commanded Moses. They made the ephod of gold and of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and of finely twisted linen. They hammered out thin sheets of gold and cut strands to be worked into the blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen, the work of skilled hands. They made shoulder pieces for the ephod, which were attached to two of its corners so it could be fastened. Its skillfully woven waistband was like it, of one piece with the ephod made with gold and with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and with finely twisted linen, as the Lord commanded Moses. They mounted the onk stones in gold filigree settings and engraved them like a seal with the name of the sons of Israel. Then they fastened them on the shoulder piece of the ephod as the memorial stones for the sons of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses. They fashioned the breast piece, the work of a skilled craftsman. They made it like the ephod of gold and of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and a finely twisted linen. It was square, a span long and a span wide and folded double. Then they mounted four rows of precious stones on it. The first row was carnelian, chrysolite, and beryl. The second row was turquoise, lapis, lazuli, and emerald. The third row was jacinth, agate, and amethyst. The fourth row was topaz, onks, and jasper. They were mounted in gold filigree settings. There were 12 stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the 12 tribes. For the breastpiece, they made braided chains of pure gold like a rope. They made two gold filigree settings and two gold rings and fastened the rings to two of the corners of the breastpiece. They fastened the two gold chains to the rings at the corners of the breastpiece and the other ends of the chains to the two settings, attaching them to the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front. They made two gold rings and attached them to the other two corners of the breastpiece on the inside edge next to the ephod. Then they made two more gold rings and attached them to the bottom of the shoulder piece on the front of the ephod, close to the seam just above the waistband of the ephod. They tied the rings of the breastpiece to the rings of the ephod with blue cord, connecting it to the waistband so that the breastpiece would not swing out from the ephod, as the Lord commanded Moses. They made the robe of the ephod entirely of blue cloth, the work of a weaver with an opening in the center of the robe like the opening of a collar and a band around this opening so that it would not tear. They made pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen around the hem of the robe. And they made bells of pure gold and attached them around the hem between the pomegranates. The bells and pomegranates alternated around the hem of the robe to be worn for ministering as the Lord commanded Moses. For Aaron and his sons, they made tunics of fine linen, the work of a weaver, and the turban of fine linen, the linen caps, and the undergarments of finely twisted linen. The sash was made of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, the work of an embroiderer, as the Lord commanded Moses. They made the plate, the sacred emblem, out of pure gold and engraved on it, like an inscription on a seal, 
holy to the Lord. Then they fastened a blue cord to it to attach it to the turban as the Lord commanded Moses. So all the work on the tabernacle, the tent of meetings was completed. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, frames, crossbars, posts, and bases, the covering of ramskin dyed red and the covering of another durable leather and the shielding curtain, the Ark of the Covenant Law with its poles and the atonement cover, the table with all its articles and the bread of the presence, the pure gold lampstand with its rows of lamps and all its accessories and the olive oil for the light, the gold altar, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense, and the curtain for the entrance to the tent, the bronze altar with its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, the curtain of the courtyard with its posts and bases, and the curtain of entrance to the courtyard, the ropes and tent pegs for the courtyard, all the furnishings for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and the woven garments worn for ministering in the sanctuary, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priests and the garments for his sons when serving as priests." The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. Place the Ark of the Covenant Law in it and shield the Ark with the curtain. Bring in the table and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the Ark of the Covenant Law and put the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Place the altar of burnt offerings in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard around it and put the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it and all its furnishings, and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offerings and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar, and it will be most holy. Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate them. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him and consecrate him so he may serve me as a priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics. Anoint them just as you anointed their father, so they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue throughout their generations. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. So their tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. He took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark, attached the poles to the ark and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain and set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south end of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offerings near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings, as the Lord commanded him. 
He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put on the curtain at the entrance to the court. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and a fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Leviticus 27. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to dedicate a person to the Lord by giving the equivalent value, set the value of a male between the ages of 20 and 60 at 50 shekels of silver according to the sanctuary shekel. For a female, set her value at 30 shekels for a person between the ages of 5 and 20. Set the value of a male at 20 shekels and of a female at 10 shekels for a person between 1 month and 5 years. Set the value of a male at 5 shekels of silver and that of a female at 3 shekels of silver. For a person 60 years old or more, set the value of a male at 15 shekels and of a female at 10 shekels. If anyone making the vow is too poor to pay the specific amount, the person being dedicated is to be presented to the priest, who will set the value according to what the one making the vow can afford. If what they vowed is an animal that is acceptable as an offering to the Lord, such an animal given to the Lord becomes holy. They must not exchange it or substitute a good one for a bad one, or a bad one for a good one. If they should substitute one animal for another, both it and the substitute become holy. If what they vowed is a ceremonially unclean animal, one that is not acceptable as an offering to the Lord, the animal must be presented to the priest, who will judge its quality as good or bad. Whatever value the priest then sets, that is what it will be. If the owner wishes to redeem the animal, a fifth must be added to its value. If anyone dedicates their house something holy to the Lord, the priest will judge its quality as good or bad. Whatever value the priest then sets, so it will remain." If the one who dedicates their house wishes to redeem it, they must add a fifth to its value and the house will again become theirs. If anyone dedicates to the Lord part of their family land, its value is to be set according to the amount of seed required for it. Fifty shekels of silver to a homer of barley seed. If they dedicate a field during the year of Jubilee, the value that has been set remains. But if they dedicate a field after Jubilee, the priest will determine the value according to the number of years that remain until the next year of Jubilee, and its set value will be reduced. If the one who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, they must add a fifth to its value, and the field will again become theirs. If, however, they do not redeem the field, or if they have sold it to someone else, it can never be redeemed. When the field is released to the Jubilee, it will become holy. Like a field devoted to the Lord, it will become priestly property." If anyone dedicates to the Lord a field they have bought, which is not part of their family land, the priest will determine its value up to the year of Jubilee, and the owner must pay its value on that day as something holy to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field will revert to the person from whom it was bought, the one whose land it was. Every value is to be set according to the sanctuary shekel, 20 giras to the shekel. 
No one, however, may dedicate the firstborn of an animal since the firstborn already belongs to the Lord. Whether an ox or a sheep, it is the Lord's. If it is one of the unclean animals, it may be bought back at its set value, adding a fifth of the value to it. It is not redeemed. It is to be sold at its set value. But nothing that a person owns and devotes to the Lord, whether a human being or an animal or family land, may be sold or redeemed. Everything so devoted is most holy to the Lord. No person devoted to destruction may be ransomed. They are to be put to death. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth to the value of it. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. No one may pick out the good from the bad or make any substitutions. If anyone does make a substitution, both the animal and its substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. These are the commands the Lord gave Moses at Mount Sinai for the Israelites. Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose heart are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appear before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on our anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. In the Exodus story, we are concluding the two-part saga here, where first we read Moses was delivered and commissioned, and then the Hebrew people were delivered and commissioned. In this last part of the story, we zoomed in on God's glory. As Dr. Imes describes in the last session of her free Exodus course on the Bible Project, which I super recommend, we've been reading about all the supplies, plans, and manufacturing for the tabernacle, but... It has not been operationalized yet. In this story, there it is. It is being operationalized all the way to the point of anointing and consecrating, where Moses saw the work and approved in chapter 39, verse 43. He gave a blessing in chapter 39, verse 43 as well. And Moses consecrated the results in chapter 40, verse 9. Moses set up on the first day of the first month, 40, verse 2. He finishes the work in verse 33. And Dr. Imes points to these as more creation echoes to the tabernacle text. This part of the story is a summary of sorts for priestly ordination, and it's elaborated on much further and in greater detail, which we also read in Leviticus 8 and 9. In the end of chapter 40, the last book of Exodus, I just have to emphasize because I think it's so cool and I feel my heart longing for it. Everyone could see God's presence. So my daughters are so sweet. Sometimes they will say to me, I wish I could hug Jesus. There's something special to look forward to about that close physical proximity of God to us. I remember how 
you know, in Genesis, we read in the Garden of Eden, how he, he walked in the garden. He spoke directly to Adam and Eve. In this story, there is this physically observable cloud that moves and changes by day and night. The presence of God is leading them. Can you imagine being on a road trip, but really it's a move trip with God? When he moves, you do. And when he stays, you stay. On one hand, this sounds amazing. But on the other, having led study abroad trips before and traveling in groups myself, I know how sometimes it can seem frustrating to feel like you're hurrying up and waiting or when you want to adventure, but the leader says stay or when you want to stay and the leader says go. So Dr. Imes points my attention to chapter 40 where God's presence in a cloud is over the tent of meeting. But Moses does not and cannot, does not go in, which might seem strange considering how many times we know Moses has already been in the presence of God. But Dr. Imes gives a good explanation for why this might be. She describes how Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers are all distinct stories, but they also all start their stories with the word and. There is this literary suggestion to read these stories together because they're telling one connected story. And while Moses has been in God's presence, he has not taken part in this tabernacle restoration project. And we know because we've read in in tandem in Leviticus that Leviticus starts with the need for atonement and sacrifice before coming into the presence of God. She describes how Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers have a fade in and a fade out or a zoom in and a zoom out aspect to them, which is worth noting because it's not like a descriptive, like literary documentary of here's this situation and then that one and then that one, one after another in chronological order. Yes, there is chronological order, but the story and narrative are not concisely written out as cleanly as that. So Dr. Imes also describes how God was gracious in his response before Mount Sinai when the people were complaining. And perhaps that kind of explains why Moses could come in to God's presence. But after the laws were given and the tabernacle created, there's this articulated way to navigate coming into the presence of God. Maybe because I'm American, a firstborn, somewhat of a maverick and a challenger, it's hard for me to consider all these specific details of action required for the Hebrew people to come into the presence of God. However, I'm not sure why, but I also think of a Navy SEAL on a rescue mission of hostages in a foreign land. So a Navy SEAL is going to give specific instructions to the rescuer, like get down, cover your head, put this harness on, cover your ears, run, all this in order to not only get them out of danger, but there would be protocols and procedures to check and restore their health and repatriate them into the United States. Every rescue, restoration, and redemption process I can think of requires sacrifice and considerable attention to detail in order to come to fruition. Again, I'm constantly reminded how God did not give us creation to work and live in it alone until our time runs out. And God did not create us to be his puppets or to do all the work for us. He gave us a portion of his power and authority. He gave us a special place and a special relationship with him. He gave us purpose and one policy and we morally defected, alienating and dislocating ourselves in so many ways. An exodus started in a worse state than alienation. It was absolute enslavement. The adversary had taken a hold of us. God not only needed to rescue us from the adversary, but redeem and restore our hearts, our moral defection, which alienates us to begin with because God is holy. I think of him as a light as strong as the sun, which can bring warmth and guide. But if we get too close and we do not have protection, atonement, 
we're not holy. It will kill us. God wants to be close and he wants to restore and redeem us so that we can be physically close. But we must submit to his rescue and redemption restoration mission and our role in it. Or we will die in a state of alienation due to our own self-exile. Or maybe even slightly worse, but definitely also bad, self-righteousness, where we want to seek our own redemption in our own ways, more or less, for ourselves and the outcomes that we want. Going back to the story of Moses in Leviticus 9, verses 22, we read how Moses, along with Aaron, they do eventually get to go into the tent of meeting after following these procedures and bless the people and take on this amazing role in the community. And there's this sense of renewed creation taking place where the people are being asked to move from disorder towards God's order, from oppressive to ethical and charitable love, from serving Pharaoh to serving Yahweh, as Dr. Imes describes. In this story, we're also reading how God is creating a new place and space where like creation in that story, there is sacred time, a new calendar, a sacred space where God is dwelling and present and shared obedience and generosity or guardrails and building blocks given towards our use as vice regents and brand ambassadors. In summary, the story of Exodus, they are freed from slavery. And then in Leviticus, they understand more about why they, what they're freed for, to become a kingdom of priests to be a blessing. And while history might note that people freed from oppression often become a new type of oppressor, here in this story, God is putting up guardrails for the people to make it clear that's not your mission or purpose to oppress others. He's creating a new type of situation where the freed have a purpose and it's not to become the new oppressor. Then Brent Billings and Marty Solomon from the Bema Project describe the story of Leviticus as also a two-part story where the first half is about me, us, approaching God, while the Hebrews had been saved from the adversary Pharaoh, atonement or the reconciliation of us to God through offering is laid out as necessary before restoration and redemption can truly begin. The second half is about me, us, helping others find their way to or find their way back to God for the purpose of dwelling with Him. Dwelling with God isn't some sort of cosmic retirement of a restoration and redemption or from alienation and dislocated status from Him in Genesis 3. Our creation care purpose is to rule, fill, subdue, and work, care, protect, and participate in the rescue as described in Genesis 1 and 2. It's still part of our commissioning. So the story of Leviticus tells of what it means to be a priest and a kingdom of priests, not a kingdom with priests where most people are exempt or we're just hanging out. We did learn about the fourfold role of the priesthood, putting God on display, bearing his name, helping others navigate their way to God by being his image bearers, creation care agents, and vice regents, being salt, light, fruits of the spirit through more grace, more justice, more mercy, more lifting up those who are the lowest and downcast and holding that integrity ethical line, interceding for others, standing in the gap instead of blocking others' way, praying to God on behalf of others, even when they make mistakes, especially if they make mistakes praying on their behalf, being generous with the distribution of our resources to those in need. We've also been learning that there are times when we need to execute God's plan specifically. And there are also opportunities for us to give our talent to make things with our giftings and to create for the purpose of blessing others in our choose our own charitable adventure sort of way. There is both a follow and a participate in the management going on in this story. And with that, I bid you adieu to Exodus and Leviticus, which in French, Bid you adieu means goodbye, but it literally means to God. 
and was part of a, a du vous comment, which means I commend you to God. So the next story we'll take up is Numbers and Deuteronomy. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow. Tomorrow.